everybody, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. Mike and Tim here, and uh, we're recording unusually the introduction at night. We've got a great show for you. I hate calling it a show, but I mean, <laughs> I don't know what else it would be. But um, we have uh, a guy that I have been trying to get on the podcast, Scott McKnight, one of my favorite theologians. He's written a, a couple of I me mean, and, and Scott's genius is in channeling really great scholarship into very accessible works. And he and his co-author Cody just wrote a book called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And as we are in the middle of a series of conversations about Revelation, it seemed like, hey, we had to talk to this guy. And then we found out the Holy Post um, interviewed him the week before we did. So we cooked up a bunch of different questions and uh, we're right. thrilled to have he and Cody on. So I highly, highly encourage you not only to listen, but if you're interested in following along in the conversation, I mean, the book's amazing and I didn't read it until it was released on the 28th of February. So I've not been using it at all in um, the revelation stuff, but my goodness, I couldn't encourage it more as a great introduction. So that's what's coming. A really helpful intro that, um, you know, just to hear it from another couple of voices about why it is that we've kind of understood Revelation wrong and and, and the possibility that you can actually understand it um, and make sense hey, of the book. Not, yeah, not every detail, but I'll, like the grand narrative and, and how a lot of the things fit together. So super excited about that. I keep it's looking funny, at my shoulder. I was thinking about that. Why? What's over your shoulder? Well, because I, I feel like there's a disturbance in the force. Uh-oh. And I, I hear like one or two steps at a time, a young man <laughs> with a yearning for a theme song. That's, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm picking up. The nice thing about recording this little intro at night is that Mr. Seth is in the house. Come on over, boy. Come on over. He was making, why are you walking down the stairs so slowly, my son? You know, you know we love you. You know we want you on the show. Hi, 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 The fact that hi, the, the Voxology podcast is on YouTube has made like a whole world of difference now to Mr. Seth. So right. we're very excited. And yep, not excellent. We're making faces at each other. Perfect. <laughs> let the let the hear understand. Um, Seth, yeah. did you hear tell my us, face? Tell us a little bit about your weekend. Um, my weekend is good. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mister Gummy, hold on. Um, we can't. We can't. There you go. Oh, uh, there you are. <laughs> there you. When we see your face, bro. <laughs> um, we did haircut. We got haircut, man. Chick Fil A and Chick Fil A. I thought you'd be a little more excited about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, we had church today. We had church today. Yeah, we did the Shema today, didn't we? Shema, you and me. Shema with Chase. Yeah, we had we had Chase up. He did the Shema with us. And I have good to McDonald's with my dad. Yeah, I went to McDonald's because Chick Fil A is closed. Yes. Yeah, so we get chicken. Oh, that's right. It's a holy day. Yeah. What's that? Yep. Sunday. It's it is Sunday. That's right. Chick Fil A isn't open on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So we had a great time, huh? Yeah. So Timothy, how was your week? I can you give us just very quickly a short review of the movie Cocaine Bear? 
I'd really appreciate <laughs> because on behalf of all of us who will never see that movie, first of all, is it a real movie? And secondly, was were there were there any redeeming features to this? First of all, it is a real movie. Second of all, no. <laughs> it's exactly what you expect of it, but a little bit worse. Like you go into a movie like that expecting it to be, you know, a bear yeah. eating cocaine and attacking people, but yeah, uh, that that's as far as the like narrative plot really goes. Okay, all right. That bear just continually finds another package of cocaine and eats it, and then goes on another rampage. So, okay, I'm sure there's some people that will love it. Yeah, um, I'm more intrigued by the fact that it was directed by um, Elizabeth Banks, right? Which is right, crazy. But. Yeah. Yeah, she, that is crazy. she must have been pulled a lot of friends in because there's a lot of you know you yeah. you know all the actors that you see on the screen. I love it, and they so all it's like, all and right. they all perish dramatically. <laughs> That's so great. So yeah, t- why are you coughing, bro? Um, What's I, going on? I was just coughing like Nate. You were coughing like Nate. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that explains Tis the it. season. Yeah. Yeah. Totally, dude. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Now, <laughs> one other thing we need to get to. Before we dive into Revelation, um, there was an article published earlier this week by Joshua Ryan Butler, and it was on the Gospel Coalition website. And it was an excerpt from his forthcoming book called Beautiful Union. And if you uh, are not on the Twittersphere, um, the excerpt was... First of all, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, you're not missing much. Um, The excerpt was troubling, to say the least. And um, I I will spare you the the very detailed uh, language, but the idea was that the sexual act, of course, is uh, a representation of the gospel. And there were, it was a very sort of complementarian understanding of the woman's role um, as hospitality and the man is generosity, and um, quite rightly, there were people even within um, the Keller Center, which is an expression of the Gospel Coalition now, who were, you know, rightly calling all sorts of things into question. And we had actually booked Josh. He'd emailed us. Uh, he's been on our um, show And uh, he emailed us uh, several weeks ago and was like, hey, I'd love to have a conversation with you guys about this. We said, absolutely. We think think it fascinating to try to articulate a compelling sexual ethic in today's world. And we were going to use that to sort of jump into... Seth, I like the noises you're making. (laughs) We were going to jump into just a whole (laughs) series of conversations about it, but we're not sure that's wise. Uh, I haven't even gotten to the book yet. But um, Gospel Coalition has pulled it down, the, the first chapter and the excerpt down, and he is no longer part of this Keller thing. And, and you know, I, um, I personally think and have had great experiences with him as a very generous thinker. Um, and Lord knows I get a lot wrong myself. And so there's a piece of me that is sad because um, of how all of this has conspired um, and, and the, the consequences that will weigh on him. But I'm more sad that this kind of, um, theology, uh, still exists and is platformed and was deemed 
by the many of the big influencers at the Gospel Coalition is a magnum opus and li- mm. literally the most compelling book on sexual ethics that they've read. And so <laughs> there is a great disconnect that was set chewing on my ear. There was a great disconnect between the intention of the book and the heart I think Josh probably had behind the book and how it comes across and the way particularly sexually abuse survivors have heard it. And interestingly enough, Tim, you, you texted me something Rachel Held Evans had written in 2012 that addressed this. What was the, what was the quote that you found really compelling? Well, she wrote, yeah, she wrote a whole blog post to the Gospel Coalition on this topic, on something else that they had put out in 2012. Um, but it rings very relevant. Uh, so this is just one little line out of it. She says, for all of our debating about gender roles and church leadership, motherhood and singleness, sex and housework, women working in the home and women and women working outside of the home, this conversation isn't actually about any of those things. It's not about sex. It's not about church leadership. It's not about roles. It's not about the Bible. It's about power. It's about whether or not patriarchy, man's rule over woman, really represents God's ideal for the world. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of sisters rightfully upset by what they read um mm-hmm. yeah so yeah and and you know for tim and i or at least i'll just speak for me i mean it it, it represents some i i think i really find the exegesis um disagreeable and i i, I think the points and the metaphor that's developed in the article are not um accurate but there is this whole host of trusted sisterhood that is not only speaking to that, but also the way in which language and the, the idea, the images that have been uh, that are presented have been used to actually justify sexual assault and worse in religious yeah. terms. And yeah. I was talking to our friend Susie, and she literally had. I mean, I want to bring her on maybe next episode. Um, she literally had two conversations with women who were having a great deal of marital difficulty because of teaching like this. Um, totally. and, and, and in one case, it was very much about power and, you know, that yeah. she owed him well, whatever, whatever, whatever. And, and so we just have to do better. I think the Bible has a sexual ethic. I think that, um, However, to be articulated that way in today's world is just, I feel bad um, for all of the people who let that slide without raising any red flags. And then you have all, you have some, I don't know about everybody, but you have some people who endorse the book and have come out and said, well, they didn't really read it. And I have to tell you, that's so just crappy. Um, it's just, I, I, I get it because you want to do favors for people and you don't have time to read 87 books when a friend of yours yeah. is asking for a recommendation. And so you, you know, you skim through and grab the highlights, but my goodness to come up and say, yep, sorry, I didn't read it. I'm retracting my endorsement yeah. now that there's yep. blowback. I mean, that just yeah. seems Which like, is more than one. There was a few people that. Yeah. That just seems back, endemic yeah. of the, of the hollowness of the whole enterprise. Yeah. Right. Oh, yes. And, and so there's a bummer. So- it's a messy situation that um, Josh is seems to be taking most of the, the brunt of the 
repercussions and you know yeah. it is his writing but the gospel coalition you'd hope that this would be every time something like this happens you always hope that people are going to take a second take a breath and reassess hey a lot of people you know there's a lot of pushback on this is is it warranted is it not like to, to really think about things but the fact that you know the rachel held evans article was from 11 years ago doesn't <laughs> seem still like relevant. they've learned a ton yeah yeah and even the even the apology, you know, I mean, it's like they posted an apology that was, I mean, great. And again, I'm not in the business of trying to judge everyone's apologies and I'm not judge or jury over anybody. But um, there didn't seem to be acknowledgement of the specific harm that people were pointing out. There was just an acknowledgement that, yeah, thank you for the feedback. We're sorry this got through. We'll do better with our editorial processes. And it's like, Which well, is, is that their way of saying they didn't read it either? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great point. The, pro the problem is that it's not just the editorial issues that are the issue. It's the, it's the, the framing of complementarian theology in this way that's the issue. And yeah. yeah, and Seth, if you could see his face right now, is absolutely horrified that such things <laughs> were released uh, unread into the wild if that was indeed the case. So anyway, no, I keep, um, I've, I've joked to you that during the revelation podcast, I've had that Hamilton line. You stuck in my head. Like it's the, not a revelation. You it's want a revolution. revolution. I want to, well, she says the other way. I, oh, you sorry. want a revolution. I want a revelation. But then there's another part of that lyric right before that, where she's like, she's advocating to put women in the sequel. Like when they write the declaration of independence to include women in the conversation. Uh. Um, and that, also something I thought about during this whole thing was like, maybe yeah. you guys need to have a few more women in the room when you're making these decisions or writing these articles or these books. Well, there, there's a bunch and, on the Keller, you know, the, the Keller center for cultural apologetics or whatever it's called. It's I wonder just, how male oriented that is. Yeah. I don't know. Within don't those know. walls. Yeah. I have no idea. But anyway, um, anyway, we're not. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're going to, we're going to spend some more time in this subject. Um, we're going to, I reached out to Josh personally and just said, you know, Hey, um, appreciate you and here to talk if you'd want. And not that he has any reason to do that. Uh, and I don't think at best we have him on at this juncture. Um, I think there are a whole bunch of things that need to get sorted out, but, um, all that is to say, friends, you know, we, we are all trying to figure out a way to present fidelity to Jesus and to articulate it, making room for all of the ways that, that almost all the words have been abused. And, um, and, and that's, you know, that's a really hard thing. I think that, I think that um, this is a, a case where, Seth, you're making very loud, I don't know what that noise is. Do it, do it again. What is that? Are you like, do that again. Do the... Oh, my name is Sophie. Welcome to Fox Odyssey YouTube. Yeah, that's <laughs> definitely not the noise that you were making, for sure. So um, all that is to say, uh, we wanted to kind of reflect on that a little bit, and particularly because we, we I mean, I have a copy of the book I've not read yet. Uh, both Tim and I do, um, and we were going to interview him at the end of the month. And uh, but as part of that, promoting the book because we thought, okay, these are conversations worth having, but I'm not sure uh, that's a wise thing. So um, we still intend to, to have conversations about this. And we intend to hear 
a lot from our sisters about um, how this was uh, feeling and coming across. But um, as for me and my house and Tim and his house <laughs> and Seth and his house, yeah, we're not going to talk about it that way. What? So, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, Seth, here's what I want you to say. Um, yeah, um, let's do pigs that sat first. You want to do a shout out first? Let's do Seth, let's do Mark, let's do Stafford. Yep, I think people know that you and me and Tim Stafford are on it right now. Uh, I think that's great. Uh, nice, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, who are yes. Okay, well, we're doing a shout out. Okay, here we go. A big shout to, um, big shout to by Gombas. To, to Tim Gombas, yep. <laughs> big shout out to Tim Gombas. And Mike. And That's Mike, right. you bet. Huge shout out to that guy. Anybody else? And to Mike. And yes, Daddy sir. Mike, yeah. Yes. And Tim, totally. Massive shout outs to those guys. And to Seth Erie. Um, who makes it, who makes, yeah, that is. Who makes everything better. That's right. right. Yeah. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the good Reverend um, Scott McKnight. Fox, I want to see YouTube. And, yep, check us out on Voxology YouTube. And uh, to say, pound that subscribe button. Hey, hey subscribe button. Yeah. Say, hey, guys. Hey, hey guys. <laughs> That's what they all say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who is up with your plug up to hey, 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 subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. What's up, YouTube? Um. So anyway, Tim, you got anything you want to close with, buddy? Nope. All right. All right. We've got a lot of chaotic neutral energy over here. That's right. Next time, fans. Yep. See you next time, friends. Thanks. Bye. 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 Everybody, we are so delighted to have a couple of guests via the studio. Um, Cody, and how do I say your last name? Matchett? Matchett, yeah, that's right. Yes, perfect. And Scott McKnight, Dr. Scott McKnight, have co-written a book called Revelation for the Rest of Us. And um, it is a fantastic read, and we are delighted to be joined by you both. Cody is in Calgary, Canada, and, um, and Scott, you are in Chicagoland, correct? Yeah, northern suburbs of Chicago, yes. Nice. Nice. Well, we're delighted to have you guys. Um, tell us a little bit, if you would. Uh, Cody, let's start with you. Just give us a little bit of your background growing up, what the book of Revelation was to you, how it was presented, how you understood it, and then how that began to change. Yeah, I would say the short version of that story is I became a follower of Jesus in my early 20s. Nice. And that has sort of uniquely positioned me in reference to this particular last book of the Bible, in that uh, I don't come with some of the sort of same subcultural baggage as other people do. I didn't grow up on Left Behind. Uh, my wife did. My wife, you know, is a cradle Christian. She grew up reading those books and, you know, all of the nightmares that come with them. But I, yeah, I didn't. I didn't grow up with any of that. I 
early on in my apprenticeship to Jesus, I ended up going to Bible college and did a biblical studies degree. And so I was equipped fairly early to think about how to read some of these texts. Although I will say, honestly, there are pieces of revelation that remained a mystery to me for many years in terms of locusts and scorpions stabbing people and all the great things that we find in there. I'm sorry Uh, sorry to interrupt you. Those are Apache helicopters. I thought that was Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. B-52 bombers. (laughs) The B-52 bombers uh, in the text, which as we mentioned in our book, are now ancient history. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, my experience with the book was somewhat limited. And I think, let me speak from, because uh, Scott can speak to the other end of the spectrum. You know, I work with a pastor in a church here in Calgary, and I, I work with a lot of young adults. And I also have the opportunity to teach classes to a lot of young adults. And I think their approach to the book of Revelation is a lot like mine. They mostly want silence. Like they know that the way that people have come to read it is not right, yeah. but they don't know what is right. And so instead of trying to sort it out, they would rather almost ax it from the end of the New Testament hmm. writings rather than try to figure out. Right. So they would, they want silence. They know it's bizarre. And I probably had that experience for many years. And the more I got you know, into gospel studies and then the more I got into the rest of the New Testament, I had a hunch that, you know, since the New Testament revolves around the person of Jesus, that revelation must also revolve around Jesus. <laughs> and that sent me down the old rabbit hole of yeah. revelation. But that's sort of my, yeah. my sort of take and perspective. And Scott, you came from a more speculative kind of background, which, which was my kind of upbringing too. Tell us a little, about, little bit about your upbringing and how it was that you encountered the book of Revelation. And then when did you initially begin to suspect that traditional way wasn't the correct way? Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having us on. And, and I want you to know, Cody came to us from uh, a good Christian college in Canada, and immediately I recognized his giftedness in New Testament studies. So we began to work together, and then the next thing I thought, he could, he could help us with this book. I love it. And uh, it helped me get through it because it's a lot of work uh, to, to put it all together. Yeah. So, um, but I grew up in dispensationalism. When I was about 12, I was a paper boy. And my father, uh, you know, he helped me and I started making money. And I can remember uh, wanting to buy something with the money I made. And I bought a Schofield reference Bible. There it is. Mm. Yes. Morocco leather. Oh! <laughs> and, I, and I still have it. I don't have it in here. But uh, um, every now and then I pull it off the shelf just to look at it. And it's full of dumb notes that I wrote when I was in high school. <laughs> but um, um, I, I grew up in that. Yeah. And my father taught some of this stuff. And our, our pastor was basically a dispensationalist. Mm. But then my youth pastor was really into it. But it was when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school. Someone uh, told me about a new book at the bookstore, at the Christian bookstore in our town by Salem Kurban called Guide to Survival. All right, this this is a book, I would say Hal Lindsey cribbed all his ideas from Salem Kurban. Yeah, he was. He had a book before yeah. that called 666. Well, so there, if, yeah. If you, if you know Salem Kerbad, Mike, then you are in a very elect company. Of, I like uh, to think I am an elect <laughs> company. But yeah, for sure. No, 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 no. Um, let's not go there. All right. So, so um, I read this book, Guide to Survival, and the basic book idea is uh, it is written for people 
who who survived the rapture mm. in that sense that are in the tribulation and they need a manual to understand what's going on. So it's very clever. Yeah. And it was basically a, a radical dispensational speculative um, yeah. who's who's doing what um, in the book of Revelation. And by who's doing what, I mean, who in the modern world corresponds to what is said in the book of Revelation. So uh, at that time, when I got to college a couple of years later, it was Gorbachev with his birthmark, Henry <laughs> <Totally>. Kissinger, <laughs> Henry Kissinger. And, you know, I remember one time I was just kind of sleepily looking at TV and they were identifying it with Salem Kerban. I mean, uh, Saddam Hussein. Yeah, and I'm that's what I remember. Oh, they just keep changing names. It's, yeah, it's yeah. all the same thing. Yeah. So I grew up in that. And in college, I began to I moved toward a post-trib rapture. Um, but it was when I was in seminary and then doing my Ph.D. that I read um, all the major apocalyptic literature. And I just thought this this dispensational stuff yeah. is completely wacky. Yeah. I, and I really think it's wacky yeah. uh, in many ways. And it's not disrespect to people who are dispensationalists. It's just that when they start doing this, I think they just simply do not understand how to read apocalyptic literature. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, one of the things that you, so we're we're having a series of conversations around Revelation. We're in the in the topic of genre, and so one of the things that you guys suggest, which I'd never considered, is apocalyptic literature is an art form, and I'd love to have you guys expound on that a little bit because we've. We've talked about it, and I, but I, but that captured a nuance that I'd not heard before. Well, I'm going to ask Cody a question because I think he's he's uh, probably going to answer this. I don't. How many potential echoes of the Old Testament are in the Book of Revelation? It depends on who you ask. I think the most moderate estimation would be somewhere between three and six hundred. Yeah. That three and six hundred. I think three hundred would be very moderate. Some people go much higher than that. And how many actual quotations from the Old Testament? Oh, very few. Yeah. The, I, the, so, the number I'd read was four hundred verses and four hundred and four allusions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Greg Beale is the master of this. Totally. I mean, he's he spent his whole life doing this. Yeah. But uh, the art form, I think, starts right there, mm. and. That's I good. think it's a failure to the book to think that John is quoting these texts. He's so absorbed with these texts, and he's thought about them so much that the visions that he sees um, turn into language that sounds like Ezekiel here and Zechariah there and Isaiah there and Daniel here. Mm-hmm. It's just back and forth so much that he can't write, write down his visions without it sounding like Old Testament, and yet it is so peculiar mm-hmm. that he doesn't quote the text. It's not like he's reading Daniel and interpreting it, like writing a midrash or a commentary on it. It's He can't see things without yeah. those texts shaping what he sees. Do you see an anti-imperial thread also at play in some of the visions? Yeah, everyone. Yeah. So it's, I mean, yeah. 
yes. If you're going to ask a yes or no question, then you're going to get a yes or no answer. My first, my first start when I first started doing radio interviews, uh, my publicist said to me, Scott, when they ask you a question, answer it. Yeah. And she said, don't be a professor. So. Well, we, we we're we're signing up for the professor part. So you just this is all intended for you guys to riff on. Um, okay. Because the, the way I've come to understand the book is it's in dialogue with the Old Testament, but in a very sort of anti-imperial uh, sort of way. And I wanted to see what yeah. you guys were thinking about yeah. that. Yeah, it seems to me, I mean, part of what Scott's articulating here, too, you know, John clearly had these visions. The, the way in which he had these visions is, you know, up for contest right. and debate, but he clearly had time to meditate upon these and then filter whatever he saw, you know, as Scott's saying here, you know, we would use modern psychological language, filter them through his maps of meaning, you know, his right, right. conceptual frameworks, yeah. but his conceptual framework is the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. yeah. And so the only way he can make sense of what he's seeing is by using the story that he's so saturated in. But then as he's penning it, it as, as you're articulating here, you see that it's not just Hebrew Bible. He's also engaging with you know, the Greco-Roman world, the Roman imperial world that he is living in. Mm -hmm. And so some of the images have these, you know, interesting forms of convergence, right? I mean, right. by the time we get to Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18, I mean, you know, and, and David De Silva, I think, has, has demonstrated this in his most recent book, but the, this is Roma. I yeah. mean, yeah. she's ghastly and John is, he is, he's presenting an image that they would have been familiar with, but he is turning it on its head and he's apocalypsing it, right? You know, he's showing us behind the curtain yeah what this really looks like and it's it's not nearly as beautiful as one might think on the surface yeah and um and one of the one of the themes that cody and i develop is you can't read revelation well until you read revelation 17 and 18 on babylon mm. carefully mm. to understand the context of what this book is actually about uh, this is not a book predicting the rapture and the rebirth of the state of Israel and uh, whether whether Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist or not. Right. This is not what it's doing. It is describing, I mean, it waits a while, because. but this is the haunting, looming reality that the churches of chapters 2 and 3 are living in, mm. is this is Rome's imperial order uh, that imposes itself on them and is shaping them in new ways. Yeah. And so by reading Revelation 17 and 18 carefully, and, and this is one of the things that Cody can tell you, he's taught this to some people as well. When they, If you just read it and pay attention to the major themes, you see what's going on at the, at the level of, let's say, socio-political critique. This is what it's like. And that becomes the empire, the imperial order of Rome that John is most worried about in trying to get people to follow Jesus um, in Western Asia Minor in a way that is consistent with what uh, Jesus is like, the lamb. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's, I think from, uh, I, I wouldn't say that John is some kind of, uh, Warrior that he's going to go try to take over Rome. He doesn't think like that. Right. But this small group of people can sing songs and they can 
live in such a way that they think they are, they're sort of foot draggers. They can subvert the order of Rome where they live because they're following Jesus. Yeah. Do you think that Revelation tells us how it should be read? Are there clues in the text? Because I was taught to read it literally, chronologically, and predictively. Those were the three pieces to unlock. I got to write that down. <laughs> literally, yeah, that's right. Literally. Yep. Chronologically. 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 And predictively. And predictably. Predictively. Yeah. It's about time Go you, ahead. you write Go something ahead. of mine down because I've written so much of, of your stuff down that it's only <laughs> it's only fair. Um, no, but you guys spent... But I won't, but I won't quote you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I always quote you either. But, um, <laughs> but um, you know, one of the things that was eye-opening to me was the idea that Revelation itself tells us how we should read it. So, Cody, like you were saying, for those in the silence camp mm-hmm. who are bewildered, how would I ever know what interpretation is right? There are so many. Yeah. How, how could I trust your guys' interpretation over all of the rest of them. So that's the first question. Does Revelation tell us how it's to be interpreted? And then, and then secondly, who are you guys? I've actually heard this. Who are we to think that, that previous commentators have gotten it wrong? What makes us so aware you know, now uh, to, so as to kind of add a corrective to some of the strains of church history? So number one is, what does the text itself say? about reading it literally, chronologically, and predictively. Yeah, yeah, I can begin uh, I will, and then, sorry. Let me, let me start, I'll answer number two, and then Cody can answer number one, because he'll, he'll be good on this. Okay, who are we? Well, here's, here's why we need a new reading. And I, I, I say this quite often. Everybody's been wrong all along. Whoa. And that ought to be enough for us to think about what we're doing. Yeah. When people read the book of Revelation predictively, I call it they become speculators. Mm-hmm. It's about speculation. The question they're asking is, who in the modern world fits, let's say, the beast mm-hmm. from the sea or the beast from the land? Um, and who are the Nicolaid? You know, they, they might even right. have some of these things because in the history of the church. Yep. And, and they haven't, I often say it this way, they've almost gotten it right <laughs> by instead of doing it predictively, they should be seeing themselves as discerning in the modern world uh, signs of empire mm. that block uh, the lordship of Jesus in the world. So something like that. So yeah. I think it's not that everybody's been wrong about everything. It's the speculative approach has been proven wrong every time. Yeah. No, that's great. That's good. Now, I'll tell you one story, then Cody. All right. When I was in college, I came home in my freshman year, and I believe it was spring break, and my church had some guy from Lynchburg, uh, Liberty. Yeah. I don't think it was even called Liberty at the time yet. Thomas Road. Yeah, uh, there it is. Baptist, you know, something like that. Yeah. So, and he was preaching, and he was doing rapture stuff and eschatology. And I mean, I really got worked up on this. And I thought, <laughs> wow, this is serious stuff. Yeah. And so I say to my youth pastor, I said, 
do you think I should go back to college? I mean, Jesus is coming back. He thought by 1978, you know, I should spend the rest of my time evangelizing my hometown. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, just in case he's wrong, you should go, go back to college because then you'll be prepared if he, if he's wrong, Mm. that he was wrong. Yeah. (laughs) That guy was wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Or or maybe the rapture did happen and it was all the hippies and it's just us here left. Um, I don't know who wrote 88 reasons for Jesus coming back in 1988. So they sort of keep churning these out every 10 years. Yeah. So John Walver, wasn't it? Was it? So I think that may have been Walver. Cody has a great answer to that first question. All right, Cody, let's how, later. Does Cody. it tell us how to read? Hey, Cody. I mean, this, you know, this, I, so I, I wrote this a, should be good. You know, I don't know if it will be, but I, you know, I wrote a piece on this for Scott Substack in promotion of the book. I mean, I think the first thing that I'd say in response that you know, reading might actually be the wrong way to talk about this. Oh, Listening might actually on. be a better way that to talk about That was a question this. coming. Like it, you say yeah. revelation's meant to per- be performed. That's right, performed. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So Leave I use this in. phrase. I've, I've been using it with my students for years called the hospitality of hearing. Mm. And I don't think we think about hearing in relation to hospitality, but I think we've been quite inhospitable in the way that we've listened to the text of Revelation. Yeah. And so part of what I've done, I, I just finished teaching Revelation this last winter to 35 students, all young adults, and all of the assignments related to kind of, you know, listening, the, the performance-oriented aspects of the text, you know, with these characters, what are they doing? How are they performing? What are their actions and behaviors? So, so yeah, Revelation opens, you know, telling us it's an apocalypse. You've already mentioned, Mike, that this is a technical form of literature. Um, and we actually have an appendix in the book that sort of highlights a little bit of what you might see in this conventional genre of literature, but then John goes on to call it a prophecy and a letter. And he says flourishing, you know, or Makarios, blessed is the one reading, uh, those hearing in the plural, and then this is the real kicker, those observing the words that are written in it. And by observing, John doesn't mean those who are trying to predict the signs of the times Mm. as speculators. Mm. He means those observing the, the commands to follow the way of the lamb, as Michael Gorman would say, in uncivil worship and witness in the midst of Babylon. And so a faithful reading is what I say to my students, you faithfully read Revelation or heard Revelation if you are observing the words that have been written in it. And if you're not observing, then it's probably not a faithful reading of the book. Got it, that's good. Scott, you were right. I don't even. I, I don't even want you to add anything. That was. That was I don't. I don't know even why you asked me any questions. I know. I know. I just have. I have respect for gentlemen with really great looking heads, and I Amen. lose respect for people that feel the need to cover theirs with head coverings. Um, but that's a different conversation <laughs> altogether. One of the interesting things um, that is a very appealing to me that you guys do is you see it very much rooted in the first century um, and yet still relevant. Cody, you were hinting at this just now, relevant to further iterations of Mm -hmm. culture and empire. Can you guys talk a little bit about how Revelation pulls both of those off? Well, let me just say a, a couple points and Cody can add to it. Um, Babylon, here's, a, here's a, a statement that we make. In fact, it's so cool. It's such, a, it's such an important line that Zondervan turned it into a, 
uh, a saying on a keychain. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa! All right, hold on. Should... On a leather, on a leather strap, on a keychain, it, it says Moroccan leather. <laughs> Not as nice as that Bible I bought in high school uh, when I was twelve. That's the uh, it, it says Babylon is timeless. Mm, that's good. And and here's the point: Babylon is an image in Jeremiah, you know, uh, Isaiah, and Babylon in apocalyptic literature is sort of a trope. for the evil empires of this world that Jews experience in oppressive ways, in ways that come in and sack their city, destroy their city, etc. So when John picks up and and, and decides to describe Roma as Babylon, Mm. he, he is saying this is another instance of the original Babylon, in a sense. This Babylon is timeless. And we began to, I began to think about this, and I think Cody had some really cool charts about this. And that is, um, if you just if you just think of history as a timeline, and you keep moving Babylon along, and then stop, and then all of the the tyrants of that age begin to show up, and then you move it a little bit further along, and then you see tyrants here, then you move it a little, you get into the twentieth century. And you see, let's say, Tsarist Russia, or you begin to see um, Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin. Um, and you move it a little bit further and you see, if you're Tom Wright, American militarism. And, and you begin to recognize that this trope of Babylon is a way of sabotaging imperial designs in the world in a way that uh, we we had we've had a rapture we lost we lost Mike <laughs> yeah his power <laughs> apparently just went out so okay so we, um, we I think it's important to see Babylon as timeless in that way so that we become people who discern um, indications of Babylonian power Babylon in our world wherever it may be found whether it's your own country or some other country and it has been a tendency of american christians evangelicals who are dispensationalists to see it in russia to see it perhaps in europe um, to see it in italy uh, because of the vatican and because of the catholic church but but the truth of it would be if you study revelation 17 and 18 you see the themes, and uh, good old America shows up as a pretty good indication. And Cody, as a Canadian, is not afraid to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, one of the things I'd add to that, Scott, and then maybe you want to hop in on some of the seven markers of Babylon. But I would say, you know, there, it's interesting for me, as, even as a pastor. So, you know, I get to be in both of these worlds, you know, pastoral ministry and then getting to do some work in the academy and now PhD studies. The fascinating part about being a pastor is when we preach, we're often doing this work of saying, this is what the text means. And, uh, and here's how it can be utilized or understood, you know, in our own context. 
And it seems that with Revelation, we've just lost that impulse for some reason. It's the only book of the Bible that we think that's not, we don't do that with Revelation. Totally. Um, as though um, God, in, in his wisdom, wanted to give this first century, these first century churches in Western Asia Minor a document that they could never possibly understand. I mean, yeah, this, this isn't for you guys. This is for these yeah, guys. Yeah, the it know. just smacks of Western arrogance to think right. that we now were the ones that in 2023 can, can sort out what this means. But in the first century, they never would have understood because they don't know what B-52 bombers are yet or Hibachi (laughs) helicopters. And so it's interesting to me because I just try to push people against that impulse. You know, if we can think that reading the book of Exodus has merit for us in a, in a kind of timeless sense, the way that it might speak to us, then revelation is certainly the same. and, And this image of Babylon is certainly the same. And ancients would have thought of Babylon the way Scott exactly described it. And we go through a few examples in the book. Uh, but there are many more. But we highlight seven sort of markers or indicators. They're not the only indicators of Babylon, but Scott, I don't know if you want to speak to those markers no. or indicators for a minute. Yeah, when I was uh, when I began my PhD at the University of Nottingham in England, uh, it was in the first first month or two that we were there that I was with some young adults, uh, sixth form type people. You know, they weren't. Uh, they weren't in college yet, but they were smart and they were snarky uh, and they had opinions. And Reagan was on the throne in the United States and they thought he was the most evil empire leader in the world. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, this is how Europeans perceive the United States. And it made me more sensitive I mean, you, you've probably read enough of Tom Wright to know that he can be pretty critical of American militarism and politics, capitalism, etc. And this is these are the themes of empire in the book of Revelation. We we isolate these these major themes as indicators of Babylon, of empire that needs to be uh, um, recognized and then resisted as dissident disciples. That there is an anti-God. Jews and Christians believe there was one true God, and the gods of Rome, the gods of Asia, Asia Minor, are not the true gods. They are idols. There was, uh, there is amazing descriptions of opulence mm-hmm. in Revelation 17, and you know, uh, I've seen some pretty big places in, in the world, and uh, there's. There's a lot of opulence in the in the in the United States. They're murderous, and that is they put to death believers, um, and in ways that are almost clinical, um, mm. and they lack humanity about it. Uh, they there was a consciousness of image mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire that dominated every one of the cities. Um, yeah, I've walked through Pompeii three different times. I love to go to Pompeii. Pompeii is almost like the reconstruction of an entire city. Mm-hmm. Of course, a lot of the really cool things are in museums, but uh, images were everywhere mm-hmm. that reminded you of Rome and reminded you of the gods of Rome and Rome's politics, Rome's culture, Rome's way of life was indistinguishable from the religious practices. That's right. They didn't have private religion that way. Yeah. It was militaristic. The Roman Empire was brutal. I, I'm reading right now Suetonius's uh, book on the Twelve Caesars, mm-hmm. and I'm reading uh, the deified Julius Caesar now. 
I've read a few of the others, and I wanted to go back to read him. And he, he, all these emperors basically make it as military murderers. Mm. They are vicious. Well, Constantine, you know, when the church combines with the state, Constantine was a, you know, a brutal uh, military commander who just, like David in the spring, went to war to try to, mm. to capture some more property and money. It was a, a massive economic exploitation of if they needed grain, they went to countries and took over the country, took the grain, shipped it back. Um, if they needed grapes, if they needed olives, they just went and got it. Yeah. And so they exploited all the nations. And one of the visions of Revelation 17 and 18 is all the cargo yeah. that's coming to Rome. Now, I think that's pretty cool, that, but we got to be careful how we describe this. All that cargo then goes back to the New Jerusalem mm-hmm. as, as as it's offered to God. And the, to me, the last one is arrogance. Um, there is an arrogance, you know, that nobody can do anything to us. And I have lived long enough in the United States to know at times, this is the way we have taught about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've read enough American history to think there's a lot of Americans in time who have believed we are the greatest country in the world mm-hmm. you know we aren't the greatest country in the world if you're from italy yeah you know or if you're from if you're from israel i mean they think they're pretty cool too and uh, it's just arrogance to think there is such a thing yeah so the overall world uh, word for empire is domination mm. they want to control and they do it with force coercion and if you don't cooperate they eradicate you. Yeah. Is there is there a case to be made, because you guys have referenced 17 and 18 a few times, to read this book backwards? Like, is there a way to like, understand Look it? Look at the smile the... right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have a book right here. I know. Reading, reading Romans backwards. <laughs> and and uh, I think that's a pretty cool book myself. But um, Oh, we have the, We thought... I thought at times of calling it this, but I just thought I, I don't want to get into that. Now, John John Walton did this with the Lost World of, yeah. And after a while, you thought you know you need to lose that idea yeah. and uh, just write the book. Um, and and he he did he did very well for most of those books. I mean they they've been very helpful. Yeah. But yes, I do think uh, if you start in Revelation seventeen and eighteen you have a good start on how to read from the beginning forward in in a healthier way than has typically been practiced. Yeah. I think this could be said of, you know, most books, um, but it's pretty prominent in Revelation literature for uh, commentators to say there's no such thing as a reader of Revelation. There's only a rereader of Revelation. Mm-hmm. And in this sense, I think that that proves to be demonstrably true, actually, that to get to 17 and 18 and see where the direction of the narrative has been going and then to reread and be, and to see that, Oh, right. The, the sins that we find in these seven churches are the things that Jesus is speaking to and rebuking and correcting it. Babylon has found its way into those seven churches just as it's found its way into our own. And you can't see that until you get through the story at least once. And that's the question, right? It's, It's designed to provoke. Where, where am I and we 
where are we participating in the Babylon of our time? What are the, the where where do we see the dynamics of Babylon at play in our church and in our world? And we're invited to that sort of dissident discipleship that you describe, instead of having merely an intellectual exercise and speculating and guessing and hmm. profiting from speculating and guessing. Could I, I'm sorry. My, we, we, when, you, when you ask the question, where are we participating in Babylon? You have nailed the book of Revelation. Mm. That's what it's doing. Yeah. That's the question that people need to ask right there. If they're asking that question, they're in good shape. That'll fit on a bracelet, too. Or a chain. Come on, Zondervan. Rock and leather. Um, I'm sorry I dipped out. There, A tree fell over in our uh, on our street. That it's blocking the whole street. So our power went out just for a second. Uh, we're in Tennessee, and we're getting some major storms today. So oh, wow. yay us. Wow. Um, yeah. It's probably God's judgment. Anyway, um, <laughs> one of the very interesting... I'd not heard this. Um, I've, I've done uh, a bunch of reading, and I'd not heard the divine judgments spoken of as disciplines or divine discipline. And so I wondered if you could, I mean, I, I want to save obviously a lot for people when they read the book, but I thought that was such an interesting framing of what we typically see to be the arbitrary wrath of God against, you know, his his the rebels that he made this way and you know however we kind of countenance that you guys had a much different take on it i'd love to explore that a little bit if you would want me to yeah please <laughs> okay one of the most inter okay one of the most interesting features of the book of revelation that i f i find is the let's just say the silly chutzpah of these little churches in Western Asia Minor that nobody cares about, that Rome doesn't even know exist, probably, in some ways. Um, and there can't be, you know, it depends when you date the book, but there probably aren't any more than 2,000 total Christians in Western Asia Minor at this time, and that's counting the babies. Um, and they think that their group is going to rule the world. And they have these visions that John records, says uh, four, five, six times, mm -hmm. that uh, someday every nation, every tribe, every language, every people will, will fall down before the Lamb, before this God, and will worship this God. And the numbers that are used are beyond counting. There are myriads and myriads of people. So you have to ask the question, where, when is this going to happen? And how is this going to happen? And that vision, I think, is connected to the judgments mm. that we look at as sort of uh, graphic, uh, vindictive punitive judgment by God on people where he's pouring out his wrath and he's so pissed off that he's just blowing the places up. Well, I think that totally misses what Revelation is doing. The, the judgments of God in the pages of the Bible 
are almost always designed, and I would say always designed, to warn people, to discipline people, and to call them back to faithfulness or to get them to repent from their sin. So I see the judgments as uh, a theme that is connected to the conversion of the nations and the conversion of the world to worship the Lamb. Somehow you got to get those millions of people. Uh, and so th- that's where that idea comes from. Cody, you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just say I think in dis- I'll just I'll go the foil to that and just say I think the distinction to the seals, trumpets and bowls in the book are these interludes, which, you know, mm-hmm. trying to teach my students in Revelation that these interludes actually may be the most important feature of the book. Yeah. It, it feels really counterintuitive, but you, you get swept up into, you know, yeah. seal one, seal two, seal right. three, and then you get six and seven's coming. And then all of a sudden you see the lamb. There's a break, yes. And you're, yes. You're, you're disoriented and you're thrown off and you think, well, this is it. The end is coming. And then you get hope and uh, this beauty, this these visions. And so these interludes have this beautiful rhetorical effect too, is mm-hmm. what I would add that while we're entering into the disorientation, the spiral of, of the, of the book, yeah. it, it wants to pull us out and to show us, you know, as, as we say in the book that, you know, one day, you know, this, this, this judgment, these disciplines will fully be poured out on Babylon and, and justice will come because God's got to clear the rubble and remove the injustice for justice to finally come fully. But as we wait, we get these visions of hope and those visions of hope for me have become the most significant and important feature of the book. Yeah, and and for, along with that are and I, I assume you're including a little bit here are the songs of worship <laughs> in the in that I mean one of the ways the believers of Western Asia Minor coped or indwelled this empire was to worship God mm-hmm. the Lamb on the throne as an act of resistance and dissidence that allowed them to have a vision of what God was actually doing in this empire that would last far beyond what's going on with Rome. So I, I, I totally agree uh, with Cody mm-hmm. that these interludes are so important for the readers to catch what is actually happening. And I do, I do agree. And if Cody had grown up with me watching such things as the Left Behind movie or the oh. uh, the thief, the thief, thief in the, the what night. was it called? Thief in the thief night. Thief in the night. Yes. Oh man, those were scary <laughs> things. And, <laughs> and Hal Lindsey, when you're a teenager and you're thinking, oh, this world is coming to an end totally. immediately, um, you get caught up in the, you know what's yeah. going to happen. And I remember learning; it was just frightening and at the same time so cool to think there'd be people driving on the highways and they'd be raptured totally. in these cars and be careening into one another and yeah. all these accidents and well there was the all those lead. bumper stickers that said like <laughs> caution driver may disappear at any moment yeah, or, yeah i remember those. i've never seen that before yeah. oh cody <laughs> well just watch the avengers it, ha- it happens everyone yes. turns the dust and disappears yeah. yes of course yeah go to texas you'll see all kinds of these but the um um that sort of stuff just gives you graphic images of what would really happen. And I think it, um, I think it fails entirely. Mm-hmm. The first century Christians 
they didn't think like that. Yeah, yeah. They were they were trying to figure out how how can I be faithful when everybody that I know is gonna sacrifice to these false gods today. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. what do I do? Yeah. That's so good. So, do you think the original yeah. audience would have st- understood the imagery? Um, it's always a very interesting question because my my professor Jimmy Dunn, James D. G. Dunn, oh yes, off, often asked these questions, uh, and he called it the context of meaning. Mm-hmm. And I remember having conversations with Jimmy, and I would say, you know, Jimmy, I don't know that we should care what the audiences would catch. Mm. But I do know that we should care what the author was trying to convey. Mm. And some of the audiences would pick it up and some of them wouldn't. Uh, but he he would say to me, well, I'm really not concerned about whether graphic people in an audience are going to catch it. It's context of meaning is author and audience uh, and context combined mm. so that it's something that could be understood. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm sure there were people, you know, just think about a recent pagan who converts to following Jesus and you start reading some of this stuff and they'll say, who's Ezekiel? Yeah. Who, who's Isaiah? I mean, they wouldn't even know who Moses is. Right. Um, and you had to explain that it was Jewish God and all that. This this was so some of them, some of them clearly would not have understood it. And some of them would have. Mm hmm. I think, it, I think it also comes back to the conversation about performance, you know, which is you know, ancients loved. I mean, this is what they did. They loved to hear people. They would gather to hear people give improvised speeches. Right. And that yep. was one of the ways, you know, the, the sophists would do this all the time. And so I think that when you think about performance, which is, you know, becoming, you know, increasingly, you know, common sort of line of scholarship and conversation, I think that you would have to assume, I think we say this at one point in the book, you probably have to pause for questions. And I bet there's probably a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you think about performance and and there's something about a performance. And here's what I'd say, too, because, you know, I I preach a lot of sermons and I wouldn't say that even in preaching a sermon, everyone catches everything that I say. It's the same with lecturing, but they're catching the most significant parts. And some of it is just so visceral. And that's what I'd say about Revelation is that it's it's so it's felt in your bones almost. Mm -hmm. And you, if you, when you hear it performed, you could still walk away thinking, wow, the lamb wins and the dragon loses. Right. Mm-hmm. I want to be on team lamb. Yeah. And you can feel that whether you get all of it or not. And I think over time you would get all of it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think the visceral experience is maybe more important than the, the cognitive one. You know, one question we get quite a bit when we're going through. T- so we did a whole series just kind of going through the Bible uh, and genre and whatnot. And one of the questions we got then that we've had a couple times since then as well is why does it seem like I need to have, well, I don't remember how they worded it. Why do I need a, a theology PhD to, yeah, why do I need a to be able theology to, to even approach the Bible? The Bible? Um, and so like when you just brought the example of like the, the, the rec- recently converted pagan that sees these and goes, what, who, who, what, what, how do you guys encourage people to, the people who are not in seminary, who have never been to seminary, the people who don't have the time to read as much as you guys have read, how do how do they how do they approach this book faithfully um, when it has just been so as we've established unfaithfully yeah. um, regurgitated for eons? How do you I'll guys let, encourage? Yeah, 
sorry, I'll let Scott take the, the technical part about revelation, but I'll just say, as someone who didn't grow up in the church, who again, works with and pastors a lot of young adults who, whether we like the term or not, are deconstructing their faith. Right. I think one of the great lies that they've been told, and I say this all the time, and I'm trying to get youth pastors and youth workers here in Canada to stop saying this. They say, the Bible's easy to understand. You've got to sit down on your own and read it by yourself. Oh. And oh. just it, the God will download to you exactly what it means for you right now. Yeah. And I like that word download. I don't even know yeah, what that yeah. means. But it's like the matrix. Yeah. yeah. Like so, matrix. so part, yeah, it is, it is like the matrix. So part of what I'd say there is that I'm just trying to say it's, it's, it's complicated. It's meditative literature, but it's meant to be read in community. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think this whole notion of a personal Bible time, um, while it's great and I do it, it, I think that it actually sometimes hurts people more than it helps. So I'm trying to have people think more about like wrestling with God when it comes to the Bible okay. and refusing to let go. And that's become a more powerful image for me. But Scott, you can speak to Revelation yeah. particularly. Yeah, well, I, um, I used to speak quite a bit at a church with the initials Willow Creek. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, after I spoke, I would, I would get asked questions at times where I didn't say this, but I thought this, and I would say, say to myself, someone should take your Bible from you. You, mm-hmm. you need to start over because you're just getting things so mixed up. Now, yeah. I would never do that, but I, I mean, I'm, I would certainly think that. But um, I, do, I do think that uh, Cody has tapped on something that's very important, is the, the average person thinking that they can read any book in the Bible and make sense of it is really pretty silly. Uh, the church has always taught, uh, it's called the perspicacity or perspicuity of Scripture, that the average person who reads the Bible can understand the basic message. It doesn't say it's going to understand every detail. The, the best scholars in the world don't know what to make at times of Romans 9 through 11. Mm-hmm. And uh, the book of Revelation requires a sensitivity to a genre called apocalyptic, um, a sensitivity to Old Testament imagery, how prophecy works, what empire means, what Rome is about. Uh, so these images are flying in this book. Yeah. And to think that they just intuitively make sense is is dangerous. We do this in all sorts of things. Now, I do think that most of us can read the Chronicles of Narnia and get the storyline. All right. Mm-hmm. But the Chronicles of Narnia is not a first century text. If, if I give my students um, a biography or a, no, a, a novel, a, an ancient Greek novel from the first century, uh, frequently they'll get lost because they won't know what some image in what's being played. So uh, I often quote this. I've been quoting this for more than 40 years. There's a German line by Johann von Goethe that goes like this. Willst ein Dichter du verstehen, musst ein Dichter's Land and it means, it translated, if you want to understand a poet, you have to go to the poet's land. And the point mm-hmm. there is, if you want to understand a first century Jewish Christian apocalyptic text, you're <laughs> going to have to go read some first century apocalyptic texts yeah. to catch how these things work. And it's only fair to another person to listen to them in their world. Yeah. Mm. And until you do that, you're not really a good listener. 
Yeah. So there. Yeah. yeah. There. Great question, Tim. Listen, gentlemen, I'm really proud of you guys. I, I um, this is a great book, and it's a great edition, and super accessible to loads of great scholarship. Um, so well done, well done. I'm Thank so you. glad it, it came out when we're in the middle of a, a, a whole series of conversations about the book itself. So not only is it helpful for our folks, it's helpful to me, but um, I really would encourage our audience to go check it out. Scott, I know you have a sub stack and I don't know how exactly those work. I used to read your blog all the time and now it's a sub stack. Is it still a blog or how does, what is a sub stack exactly? What is a, what is a blog? What is a sub stack? Sub stack is, is they called it a newsletter for a while, but it's uh, it's less and less a newsletter. It's more and more communication of people who want to read stuff that I'm writing. Uh, so it's um it's Substack is a pro is a I don't know what you'd call a I don't know what they call those things, but it's um it if you look up Substack and then type in my name, it'll it'll send you to my site. Great, Cody. We need some um, Gen. What are you, Millennial Gen Z? I'm a millennial. We need, we need a millennial interpretation of Substack because I grew up with blogs, and then they yeah. turned into newsletters, and which sa- which just sounds like another word for blog. I'm not quite sure exactly, but tell me, Cody. I think just Substack as we wrap is up. similar. I think it might be another type of word for blog. I think the difference is you can sign up, and it'll get sent right to your email yeah. box. And then there's uh, also a paywall for some of the posts. Yeah. So you pay to be a subscriber, which becomes a good way for people who are writing to make Absolutely. supplementary income. Because, you know, there's a, there's a lot of money in writing. So, you know, um, <laughs> they, the writers out there can use our support. I think it's a hybrid of many different platforms, but it's still basically, I would think okay. you would write the same sort of stuff you used to writing your blog. Mm-hmm. Right, Scott? Yeah, yeah, it's totally the same stuff for me. Same yeah. thing. Well, Scott, I mean, yeah, I mean, people... A lot of our listeners are not going to know the heyday of the Scott McKnight blog, um, the 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 Rob Bell days, the Mark Driscoll days. It was glorious, glorious. There, there was another. We can cut all of this, but I, I was literally just trying to figure out because I wanted Scott to direct you or direct people to that Substack, and then I got caught up in what is that exactly, and I don't know. But anyway, all right, we'll just direct people to your substack. Are you, are you suggesting those were the heydays and I'm on the I'm on the decline now? Is that what you're suggesting? Oh no. Just the art form is on was is on the decline. You're ramping up. Oh yeah. That's right. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you Thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.